This is The Ethicist, a podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appiah, teaching philosophy at New York University. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Amy. How are you? I am fine. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. I'm happy you're here, Kenji. Great to be here as well. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about rice, almonds, and the state of California, whether or not you can sell a gift, and what's a gift anyway, and how much help is too much. Okay, here is our first question. Dear ethicists, we enjoy rice from California, one brand in particular being especially good. But rice really should not be grown in that state. It requires vast amounts of water, and at this moment, the state is in the midst of a serious drought that shows no signs of easing. The same could be said for almonds and avocados. Is it ethical to buy California rice and other crops that require large amounts of water? Sincerely, name withheld. Your your first presupposition that I'm not sure I share is is that there's anything wrong with using water to grow rice in California. Uh, I mean, anything ethically wrong. It's extremely silly. It's dumb to invest in anything that involves a lot of water in California because uh, eventually your business is going to have to go since some big decisions are not too far down the road there about how people and farmers are going to get the water they need. But to the extent that there is an offense here, I don't think it's on the part of the rice growers. It's on the part of the politicians who failed to do anything sensible to regulate water use. Right now, these rice growers are just doing something legal. And uh, while they wouldn't be doing it if there were better policies, perhaps, I don't think that they are doing anything wrong. And in any case, I don't think there's much point in avoiding the rice or the almonds or the avocados if you're trying to make a difference because uh, your choices will have no detectable impact on the producers or the state, uh, even though the state ought to be pressured into regulating its water use better. So if you want to do something useful, I suggest you organize a boycott. They might notice that, Uh, though I think that would involve an awful lot of work, and you might think that there are other things you could spend your time doing than organizing a boycott of uh, uh, products in California that use too much water. So I don't think you have any real ethical reason uh, to abstain uh, because I don't think it would do much good. Well, I, I think that's exactly the right way to look at it, that um, the individual refusal to touch whatever the product is is not going to change um, the situation in California or in any other place. Um, that, that if you want to do something, organizing a boycott is good. I suppose it's true that if it makes you feel better, there's certainly no reason not to boycott rice or almonds or choose not to eat meat um, because there are going to be a lot of water-demanding products that you should probably turn away from if that's the policy that um, you want to support actively. But I think what this recalls for me is Kenji's remark about upstream where you look for the source of the of the problem rather than blaming the farmer, looking at the choice that the state has made and um, politicians have made about how they're handling this terrible drought and the issue of water supply and demand in California, which cannot come as a surprise to the state, even though that's what their behavior would indicate. 
And the only thing I would add, I'm in complete agreement, I think we have unanimity here, is that um, just think about the broader consequences of what you're saying. Because as I understand it, rice isn't the biggest culprit. I think animal feed is, so that your real target should be sort of meat and dairy if you are really about sort of water conservation. Uh, maybe you don't consume meat or dairy from California, and that's what's guiding your choice. Uh, but there's also uh, some literature about the benefits of the rice fields themselves. So there are con- conservationist groups that have stepped in to create rice field substitutes uh, for the rice fields in California that have now gone defunct on the ground that the wetlands are crucial for various forms of fauna. So, what are rice field substitutes? So essentially they're ir- irrigating or flooding lands in oh. order to create fauna so that or, or create preserves for the fauna there, right? So there's an, a flip side to this of saying like, oh, rice fields seem like a very visible, you know, n- sort of signifier of uh, excessive use of water, but it's precisely that excessive use of water that allows certain kinds of wildlife to uh, continue their existence. So, yeah, I, I think that this is a really admirable uh, impulse, but um, I, I do think that the government of California is the uh, proper place to direct uh, these uh, these objections. Right, to take the admirable impulse and try to do it as part of a larger group and also being mindful, as you say, that rice might not be the biggest problem. And the, the other thing I should say about this is that, and this comes actually from a constitutional law perspective, because this is a distinction that was once used a lot in con law and has now been, I think, rightly rejected, which is the so-called process product distinction. So uh, back in the day, if the product were innocent, uh, but the process were bad, then the court would say um, the federal government can't regulate it. So it would draw a distinction between, say, whether or not... Um, you are creating a bad product like child pornography or whether you're creating an innocent product like a doll, but you are using child labor in order to uh, create it. And I think that this suggests that even though the um, bad product like child pornography might be the more visible target, I think one thing that I want to give the writer here props for is understanding that the processes through which innocent goods are created can themselves be very harmful. Uh, And so I I think that that's a positive dimension of what's going on here because the person is not only caring about the good itself, which he actually very highly values, or she actually very highly values, uh, but is more worried about the the processes. And I think that's a great, it's great not to get get kind of flummoxed or or, uh, misled by that, that faux distinction between process and product. So I do think it's important to bear in mind always that um, uh, there's a difference between – I mean, I think, Kenzie, you're completely right that it's good to focus on the question um, in, in the right way. And if you can do something about um, uh, about this uh, – the unfortunate way in which uh, a product you use uh, is produced, then, of course, um, you should – the, tr- the trouble is, as we said at the start, that in these sorts of cases, one person doing anything isn't likely to have any impact at all. It's not even going to be detectable to the relevant other actors. And there's a temptation, I think, to think, well, I'm doing something good simply because I'm not participating in this practice. And I just want to notice that the the idea that you should avoid participating in unwise practices even if your participation makes no difference, would require a radical alteration of all our lives (laughs) because almost everything we do is connected with uh, unwise practices of one sort and another. 
Um, your credit card is connected with the unwise practice of lending to people who can't afford to pay back their loans and so on. So I think that there's no way we can clean our hands of all these, of all our interconnections with one another in the modern world. And so that's why I would urge us to focus on the question, not am I somehow connected with something uh, that's bad, but is there anything I can do to make a difference? Yes, and to focus on this particular connection, and it sounds like we all see the only way in which the individual choosing not to purchase this product off the grocery store shelves, it would be by engaging in a boycott or getting involved in California politics and always being mindful of this enormous web of connection. Let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, I have two small children and thus am frequently divesting our household of toys, clothes, and other child supplies. For larger items, I sell the pieces individually through the standard channels. But for smaller items, I typically either give them away to a neighborhood parent or leave them in a box in front of my house to be taken for free by passerby. A friend on my block recently indicated that she takes much of what I leave out, and I've since offered her first pick before leaving the remaining items outside. I was happy to do so, as she has two younger children than mine, and I considered it a worthwhile gesture to share what we no longer need with her, despite the fact that she is of similar economic status and likely does not need our free cast-offs. The issue that has caused me to write is that she recently held a stoop sale, and I happened to pass by on my way to an event nearby. I recognized a very large number of the items that were formerly ours on display for sale. I find this somewhat distasteful, as the items were given to her for free or taken by her for free from in front of my home. I do not have any reason to believe that she intended to donate collected funds to charity. My question is this, am I wrong to see this as somehow inappropriate? I recognize that I'm not free to question what the receiver does with a gift or donation of any means, but it has changed the way I feel about both her and the prospect of putting out other items in the future. Am I wrong to feel she should have passed on items for free to others? I don't recall putting any conditions on the items I handed to her directly, and I certainly didn't do so on any of the free items placed in front of my home. And yet, I still feel weird about it. Signed, name withheld. Yeah, so... I think you've captured the the principles here. So I would, as a bottom line, find another way to get rid of your used toys, like giving them to a <laughs> child center. Uh, I wouldn't say anything to the neighbor. Uh, it surprised me as an intuition because usually I'm like, talk to the person. But I feel like the conversation would go something like this. She would say, you were through with these items and you didn't have a legitimate interest in them after you gave them to me without condition. And then your obvious rejoinder is, I didn't have an interest in them, but I had an interest in you. Namely, you know, I had an interest in you behaving like a decent and honorable person. But I think that this will likely cause a break. And I think my deviation from my usual inclination to <laughs> encourage direct conversation is that this is one of those instances where I think a relatively trivial issue could lead to a nuclear explosion. So I think that some forms of minor misbehavior among neighbors or friends you leave alone while making your own judgments about how you'll deal with the people involved going forward. And the break has already occurred. Yeah, that's right. a good point. It's, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not that, oh, if I go, I mean, she doesn't say this is just a neighbor. She says, this is a friend. And so it's hard to imagine the conversation where you say to your friend, hey, what's up with selling that stuff I gave you because I like you and <laughs> gave you first pick? And then either the friend says, 
oh my God, I, I completely didn't see it that way. I'm so sorry. Of course I won't do that again. Or they go, whatever. Or they say, oh, I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> but my perception is, unless you're going to get a mortified apology, the break's already occurred. But and, which way does that um, cut, Amy? Because, that, I mean, that's a really important point that you, you're making there. Because you could say the break has already occurred. It can only get better from here. So have the conversation. Oh, well, that would be a, a good person way of doing it. <laughs> you're right. Um, well, I, I feel like I don't have that much of a sense of what the friendship is really like. And the truth is, it's not inappropriate for the woman to sell the stuff. You know, she may, she also has two small kids. So she has your leftover stuff and then her hand-me-down stuff. And she says, what the hell? Let me have a stoop sale. And, and so she does that. Um, I mean, I suppose she certainly could have offered to return all the hand-me-downs to the original giver. But the fact is, they were cast-offs. And I, I sympathize with the letter writer because I understand, like, it doesn't feel nice. It doesn't feel friendly. It feels that one is bringing some level of commerce, however low a level, into what she had seen as a friendly neighbor exchange. Yeah, I guess. But I, the I fact mean, is, it's not wrong for the person to sell them late, at some later date. No. I agree with the intuition that there's something tacky going on here. But I actually find it a bit hard to locate exactly what the problem is. After all, I mean, we don't know the details here, but suppose it were the case that the things that were being sold were things that had been used for a while in this family and then passed on just as just as you, the, que- the, the person who sent the question, uh, used them for a while and passed them on. One of the ways you say in which you pass things on is by selling them. Uh, it's certainly, I think it's a very good idea in our rather waste-driven society for people not to do that, for people to recycle things and gift, giving them away, putting them on the stoop, selling them. These are all ways of recycling them. I imagine that the reason, I mean, I came to the view that the reason why there's something slightly tacky here is because um, the presumption of the gift is that I'm giving it to you for use. It's not a condition of the gift, but it's a presumption of the gift. And if you take something that's given to you for use and immediately sell it, then that is a violation of the understanding under which you got it, even though you're perfectly legally entitled to do so. But the longer you've actually used it, the less clear it is to me that there's anything wrong with using this method of recycling, that is a sale on the stoop, rather than uh, giving it to a community center or or selling it on the web or doing a number of other things that you might do. So, so but I agree that there, I, ha- I mean, I have exactly the sense that, well, there's something slightly inconsistent with the character of the way in which you acquired these things. Right. It's a disruption in the friendship loop is, yeah. is what it seems to me. It's, it's not that there's anything Wrong, And certainly if she has used them and then chooses to have a tag sale and get rid of them, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think what, what happens here is that the letter writer's feelings are hurt and there's a, a, kind of a hard to untie knot in what had felt like a smooth and friendly relationship. And I can appreciate, Kenji, that your intuition is not go to the friend because – because really, we know they haven't done anything wrong, but nevertheless, someone's feelings are hurt, and those kinds of exchanges don't always go the way one might hope. And as you say, sometimes a small thing can turn into a, 
uh, a bigger blowout than necessary. But you can sort of imagine that there, there's a spectrum here, right? One end of the spectrum is somebody who asks you for these things uh, because she has two children, takes all of them because you've offered to take <laughs> to let her have any she likes, and immediately runs a sale the next day. Uh, maybe she right. doesn't do it. Maybe she runs it on eBay, so you don't know about it. But still, okay, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, she takes them, she uses them for a couple of years. The kids grow out of them. She ha- she put, she has a sale on the stoop. It seems to me that at the at the last end, the latter end of the spectrum, you, you don't have a basis for complaint. Um, what, what I don't get a clear picture from her description is, 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 as it were, where we are along that spectrum. But I would say that, that there is a spectrum here and that, and that at some point along the spectrum, it's wrong to hold it against someone that they've chosen this way of recycling it. After all, giving it back to you after their kids have used it for a couple of years when your kids are older just seems like a pointless thing to do because you, they, the, the things only came in the first place because they weren't any use for your kids. Uh, uh, that's why you handed them on. But I want to pull against that a little bit, Anthony, because the thing that you're putting your finger on, which I think is great, is that there may be an ethical posture towards the goods themselves, right, to make sure that they're, they don't go to waste in a society that is so wasteful. Um, but it doesn't, to me, uh, follow from that, that selling versus giving them to other people would necessarily maximize the use of those items, right? No, no, I, I, I agree. But I do think that um, the, the, the letter writer herself says that one of the ways in which she recycles things is by selling them. Uh, and so she doesn't think that there's a, there's a principled objection to doing that. And I think there isn't. Um, market is, a, is often a good way of, of allocating goods. Right. But I think that what the letter writer is saying is, you know, if you give something to me, and then I use it for a period of time, even if I use it for a long period of time, if I turn around and sell it, there does seem to be something unsavory about that because it it takes an act of of generosity on the part of really other regarding non-self-interested behavior and makes it self-interested on, on my part, right? So it doesn't sort of pay it forward in the sense. It doesn't sort of, I think that's what Amy's talking about with the friendship loop. It doesn't carry the current of, of giving forward. Right. Though- also... These were not gifts, in fact. I mean, she says, I put the stuff out in a box for passersby, you know, or I, and, and my friend said to me, hey, I take most of that stuff because I could use it. And I say to her, okay, well, you know, you can come in and have first pick of the stuff. So I just want to say it wasn't exactly like she had gone out and bought her <laughs> these things as a gift. She said, I'm getting rid of them no matter what. I'm giving them away. And if you want first pick on the stuff I don't want anymore, which is not usually our definition of a gift, <laughs> um, you know, feel free. And so I think in terms of, you know, my feelings towards what An- Anthony is saying, I feel that if the neighbor has made use of these things and then wants to sell them, I can certainly see that. I think it would have been nicer if she had said, hey, Susan, my kids have been playing with the stuff. They're done with it. Is it okay with you if I sell them? That would be a nice thing to do. I'm going to run against the crowd here. I mean, I do think that uh, you're not selling it for, you know, $1,753. These are things that you're selling for a couple of bucks. The object of the exercise is to redistribute them, not presumably to raise money, Um, and and rather than wasting them, rather than putting them in the trash. Um, So I... I agree that if you know it turned out that the teddy bear was was uh, was was a teddy bear that for some reason had suddenly <laughs> acquired huge value, and you had taken it knowing that and sold it the next day, that would all be wrong. 
but um, but I'm I'm not I myself. Uh, I imagine a stoop sale in which things are three dollars, five dollars, you know, two dollars. It's not about the money. It's just a way of redistributing the stuff. Yeah, Anthony, we we disagree, but but on your side of the case, you know, I I want to say that there's a great um, Japanese uh, tradition where uh, the objects that you have wasted come back to haunt you. So, you know, there's a, <laughs> you know, and and here, you know, a lot of our demons and our ghosts, you know, are are you know human beings, but in the Japanese tradition, um, sort of old umbrellas turn into ghosts yes. uh, and things like that. And it's actually a really wonderful uh, message to give to children about thrift, right? Yes. Which is to say that you have, going back to the earlier thought, that you have an ethical obligation not just to people but to the things themselves and yes. not to engage in waste. So there I'm with you. All right. Well, I think our feeling is that we understand that feeling of discomfort on the part of the letter writer. This wasn't quite what she had in mind, and it doesn't fit in with her sense of maybe the friendly exchange in which commerce, however minimal, um, was not going to appear. On the other hand, I don't think any one of us thinks that um, having taken the cast-offs and used them, that it is wrong or unethical to sell them since none of these were particularly valuable or handcrafted or items that had sentiment attached. And I think the feeling that Kenji and I have, it would have been an additionally nice thing to call the owner of the cast-offs and say, we've enjoyed playing with them so much, would you mind if I have a stoop sale? And Anthony, I regret to say that all my cast-offs are going to Amy now. (laughs) Okay, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, my husband and I, both retirees in our 60s, are struggling to figure out how to deal with his alcoholic sister, an intelligent and talented woman who has proven unable to hold a job. We moved Rebecca, not her real name, to our small town a few years back in order to give her a fresh start after an ugly divorce, and have lent her considerable support, both emotional and material. She has not repaid us either in monetary terms or, by and large, in gestures of gratitude. And despite repeated urgings from us, she will not seek help from AA or social services. We have caught her in numerous lies and evasions, and in the past she badmouthed us to other relatives for alleged offenses that we did not commit. It appears likely that Rebecca soon will lose both her most recent job and her roommate, which means, as she has no savings, that she will be unable to afford the rent on her house. She's eligible for Social Security, but because of her scant work history, the monthly payout will be minuscule. Relocating her to an apartment is not the answer because she refuses to give up her pets, and she is alienated from virtually all her former friends. Under these circumstances, how far do our obligations extend? I have come to see Rebecca as a taker, and I believe that we are enabling her to continue making bad choices. My husband counters that because Rebecca is sick, and because she is his flesh and blood, he is responsible for her across the board. Our marriage increasingly is under stress. Thank you for any advice you can provide. Signed, name withheld. I would say that you and your husband don't actually seem to disagree. You say that the two of you are enabling Rebecca, and he says she's his flesh and blood and he is responsible for her across the board. 
These are not different opinions. Um, for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to object to or have difficulty with the bad-mouthing, the drinking, the refusal to get help, and the lying. Um, I'm not sure where he sees she is my flesh and blood and I am responsible for her across the board going. And that's part of what I would really want to understand better. Um, it doesn't sound like even if he were willing to get her an apartment and pay for the apartment, that she'd be able to stay in the apartment because of her other issues and her pets and her difficulty with people. Um, I sort of feel that what the letter writer sees is Rebecca coming up the driveway <laughs> with the animals, friendless, miserable, furious, um, and broke, and taking up residence in, in the house. And that doesn't seem to me to be unrealistic. So my greatest concern is what's going on between the letter writer and her husband. It's not so much an ethical quandary. I think you have both extended yourselves admirably on behalf of Rebecca. But there is some sort of mystery going on in the marriage as to why you are so far apart in your view, not only of what's going on, but also in your view of what should happen next. Well, if we think about ethics as what we owe to others, isn't the ethical quandary, the, you know, whether or not you owe more to your flesh and blood or whether you owe more to your marital partner? Because to some extent, it's a zero-sum game here. Yeah, I, but I, I don't I, think what they want, I don't know what they want to do for Rebecca. They've already done so much for her. And the letter writer doesn't seem to object to what has been done so far. Yeah, there's two possibilities here, right? One is that the problem is that there's a disagreement about what's going to help Rebecca. The brother thinks, oh, we just go on letting her behave in these ways and we give her what we can and that's it. And and uh, the, the sister-in-law thinks, no, uh, actually what we've been doing is making her situation worse because we have been allowing her to get away with stuff, which she wouldn't be able to get away with if we weren't giving her these resources. And so we need to sort of bring it to a crisis. We need to, as it were, have what is sometimes called an intervention. We need to say to her, look, things need to be put right here. And, uh, and it, it sounds as though there isn't agreement about that. I would say, and I think, I think Kenji's completely right to focus on the fact that this, this, the husband here has two relationships, not just one, with his sister, and that he doesn't seem to be, at least in the account of his wife, uh, putting enough weight on the things that he owes to his wife. And among the things he owes to his wife is a recognition that the money he wants to spend on his sister is their money. It's not his money. Um, uh, among other things, a marital couple is an economic unit, and the resources of the unit are not uh, portioned portioned 50-50 so that each of you can do what you like with half, they're a collective bundle of resources and you need to have an agreement with one another about what sorts of things you can do. Now, in most couples that have enough resources, of course, each of you has a bunch of money that you're allowed to do whatever you like with. That's fine. And maybe he should just say, okay, I'm going to spend the money that I you know, used to spend on my golfing holidays, which you hated, I'm going to spend on my sister. That, that would be an agreement. But I think that it sounds as though he is not wanting to sort of have the conversations that would be necessary to get to the point where they, as a couple, are deciding what to do. And it seems to me that that's, that's an ethical mistake. It's a failure to grasp what, he's, what, what he owes to his wife. It also strikes me that, you know, the general sort of dictum that she says flesh and blood has to run both ways. So, you know, just by definition, if 
he is her flesh and blood, she is his flesh and blood, and it doesn't sound like she is honoring um, her obligations, the kinds of obligations ethically that we owe to people to whom we're related. So if she's benefiting from his largesse and then bad-mouthing both of you, you know, or both the letter writer and the husband behind their backs, you know, this is not not good behavior. We're only hearing the wife's story here, so we, uh, right. maybe Absolutely the husband would have something right. to say. But but if the wife's story is anything like the truth, I think that uh, both the husband and the sister have things to be doing. One, the husband has to be taking more seriously the fact that he's committing resources that are not his own, that belong to the couple. And the sister has to recognize, as you said, Kenji, that they are uh, that, that, that this is a reciprocal relationship and that she has... Uh, obligation. She doesn't have resources, which mean that uh, she can discharge her obligations by by giving money. Uh, but there are other things she can do, including trying to pull her life together in a way that means that she's less expensive as a sister. Yes, although it doesn't seem that Rebecca has any interest in being less expensive, less difficult, more amenable, more appreciative. And that's Rebecca's choice. But it does seem to me that there's some conversation, as we've all three of us have said, that the couple are not having. And one of those conversations is, what do we mean by obligation? You know, do we actually think that we are obliged to keep supporting her financially so that she can continue to do the things that she's doing? <clears throat> and it may be that the husband feels like, yes, that's what I want to do. I think my sister is an intelligent and talented woman, and I want to give her the money so that she can live her life however she wants for as long as she lives, um, which I don't think is necessarily even in the sister's best interest. But it seems to me that this is a situation in which there would be real value in each person in the couple making their stance explicit rather than the very vague um, flesh and blood and I'm responsible for her across the board because my response to that is I have no idea what that actually means concretely. Exactly. So if I were the letter writer, I would say, are the funds to be given to Rebecca Unlimited? Uh, will Rebecca be permitted to move into our home? Uh, are there no conditions on the largesse, such as yeah. evidence that she's an AA or some other form of treatment? You know, I, I do. I totally agree with you that sort of we're talking in vague generalities here when what's really needed, um, really from an ethical perspective, is, is, a, is a form of specificity. Um, because I, I think that one of the things that we've touched on, but I want to make really explicit, is that you know this kind of enabling behavior could really be hurting Rebecca herself to the point that it could be pushing her into an early grave, right? So it's not just a question of what obligation means. It's also a question of what you know, generosity or help means. Yes. It, it, it's, it's sometimes people do these things uh, because they're not willing to face up to the fact that they're actually not helping. Because helping would be more difficult. It would involve less money. But more time, more effort, more more, more difficult more conversation, conflict, yeah. more conflict. Yeah, and 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 really, it's not going to help. I mean, in the end, you've got to have the difficult conversations, and you shouldn't want to buy your way out of them. I, as a not any kind of expert on any of this, but I would say, by the way, that I think that the conversation, since the conversation between the husband and the wife hasn't been going, hasn't apparently been very successful so far, they might want to seek. Counseling, they might want to seek someone who can help them have the difficult conversation uh, rather than uh, she coming back and just saying, uh, we, I asked the ethicists at the Times and they said, you should <laughs> listen to me. Uh, maybe, maybe it would be better to do it uh, with a helper. Oh, I, I, think, I think those kinds of difficult conversations 
um, you know, a, a useful helping person just to get them to be um, clearer, more explicit, and also to extrapolate forward. Like, let's see what happens if we go down this path and what is likely to happen if we go down the other path. And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.